uh, and we are in a, a new series, and it's been a great series. It's through 1 Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to this little church, growing church, very much like our church. And he was encouraging them in their faith. And they were doing a great job. I mean, you really sense that from the first three chapters of this letter, that things are going well. I mean, really well. I mean, they're, they're thriving in their faith. And Paul alludes to why that is. And today we're going to look at chapter 3. And this is, this is a, a, a kind of a little moment in time where we peek into the early church. And I just want to highlight a couple things in 1 Thessalonians. And then I want to bring somebody up who's going to share a story that I think truly illustrates and models what Paul did in the first three chapters. In chapter one, Paul says, your faith is strong. You're doing great. And I want you to continue in that faith by following my example. Paul says that. Imitate me. And as they imitate Paul, they become an example for other people. So it's working. Paul invested his life into this little church. In chapter two, he says, I've mentored you, and, and Bill did a fantastic job last week of giving us six, uh, six points, basically six ways to mentor somebody else in your life. Excellent. Go back and listen to it. Fantastic message. Paul had an impossible job. I mean, think about it. I mean, think about the situation and what's going on here. Bringing this message of a savior on a cross in the context of religious pluralism. And people didn't just believe in one way, they believed in lots of ways to understand who God is. And, and it was a lot of religiosity, a lot of different religious beliefs. And to, and to bring it all together into one idea that there is one creator God and one savior, and he died on the cross, and there's this, this one way, Paul had an impossible task. It was impalatable to these people. In fact, the Jewish communities living in this area basically opposed it. I mean, this, Christ was not the Messiah. I mean, everything in culture was pushing against this message. Yet, Paul had great success. The reason why Paul had so much success in such an adverse circumstances, in a difficult situation, is because Paul knew the difference between influence and power. Paul had no power, but he had all the influence in the world. You know why? Because he invested himself in their lives. When you invest yourself in the life of another person, you have influence, not power. Power is working from the outside and it's trying to force someone into a behavior from the outside in. Influence is working from the inside out. And when you have influence, you can change a person's life. And the only way to have influence is up close and personal. And that's the story of Paul's life in this church. And I wanted to invite somebody up in just a second, but listen to what Paul says. This is the heart of Paul. 
This is his devotion. He says this in chapter three. Therefore, when we can endure it no longer, I mean, literally, Paul's using tremendous hyperbole. When we can endure it no longer, but he really meant this. I could endure it no longer to be separated from you. We thought it best to be left behind in Athens. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to come to you, to strengthen you, and encourage you as to your faith. I couldn't come. I want to come. I want to be with you. I want to continue pouring my life into your life. But I can't make it. But I'm sending Timothy because that's how much I care and because that's how much I believe in this idea that you can't change a person from the outside in. You change them from the inside out and that's through influence and that happens because of personal relationship. And then Paul says, so that no one would be disturbed by the afflictions that are happening. You knew the afflictions were going to happen. But I sent Timothy because I wanted to strengthen you and I didn't want you to be disturbed. I wanted you to keep going and wanted you to stand firm in your faith until it says at the very end of this, this, this chapter that your faith would be made complete until the coming of Christ. See, it's about influence. So take a minute and listen. Bray, pedophiles, would you come up? Bray has been mentored by several people in her life, and she's also been a mentor for other younger women. And Bray, I want you to just share some of your story of how you did it and why you do what you do. So come on up and, and just share with us. Thanks, Bray. Yeah. intergenerational church and I am super greedy and have like five or six mentors at our church um, and I mentor Brooke but I she is way wiser than I am and knows more about the Bible than I do but I'm older than her and I have more kids than her and so I've been down the road she's on right now and so meeting with Brooke um, is such a beneficial thing for me as much as it is for her which I don't even want to say it's beneficial for her but in some ways I know like what he's talking about with Paul wanting to get back to the church and wanting to see how they're doing and kind of like following up and a little worried are you are you alone are you being tempted I want to meet with I love meeting with Brooke and we do meet and I want to know like where are you at this week what is on your heart how have you um, what's going on and I I love pouring into her because it feeds me too when I hear that she's doing well or with my sister I mean like obviously <laughs> I don't meet with my sister <laughs> she's my sister but I love being with my sister and when I hang out with her or both my sisters when I hang out and hear what they're how they're doing because they're younger and because they're walking something that I've been down before I get to speak what's true over them. So if they're ever feeling not sure or 
or uncertain or whatever the case may be, getting to speak truth and remind them of who they are and what God says about them and who God is, reminding them about who God is, that it like fills me to the full and it reminds me of what God has done for me as well. So I think about um, the Israelites coming out of Egypt and God kind of giving himself a new name. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you in, who's bringing you into the promised land. He just repeated that over and over and over. Like, don't forget who I am. This is what I've done for you. This is who I am. And even as they were getting close to entering, don't forget, once you get there, it's going to be really good and you're going to love it. But don't forget where you came from. Don't forget what I did. Don't forget who I am, that I'm your God and that you're my children, you're my people. And of course, they were super quick to forget it, just like we are. And um, I said it in the, the other service and I totally blanked on the verse. But Kristen Windorf is also one of my mentors. And one thing she told me right off the bat was Proverbs 18.1 says, he who separates himself seeks his own way. And it's this idea that um, it's not good to be alone. Like we are not meant to do this by ourselves or to walk this road by ourselves. We are relational. We are created in his image and he is a relational God. And there is this constant pull to be independent and to do it on our own and to especially when things get hard to separate it's really like there's the enemy always wants you to isolate and it's really tempting because it's hard to be vulnerable but that is the opposite so if you're ever feeling like I should isolate that's a red flag you know you shouldn't you should go find a mentor or somebody who's walking life with you and um and share because that's how we grow that and so anyway the whole thing with the Israelites and God reminding them when I am mentoring or talking with Brooke or talking with Cass or anybody who's coming up when I tell them something that's true in the midst of what they're going through that I've already walked through it also reinforces what God has done in my life and it reminds me of yeah that's right this is who God is because this is what he did in my life and um, it's so it's 100% reciprocal and not a weird I'm smarter or wiser thing it's just simply a part of relationship is that we get to be intergenerational I get to look at someone who's walking something that I did walk a couple years ago and I get to look and see somebody whose kids are already um, graduated high school and find out what did you do when your daughter was in junior high it's it's totally reciprocal and beautiful and I think our church does that really well and if you don't have a mentor or you don't feel like you're mentoring anyone or not qualified just that's all a crazy lie and our church is rich with mentors so you better find someone and there's definitely someone that could learn from you and what God is doing in your life even just today so that is what I think is valuable Thank you, Bray. Thanks for your honesty and just uh, your humility in this because Bray is a, a silent force that works in our church that uh, you may not see. And I know there's so many of those men and women that are like these silent forces of influence through relationship that are changing lives. And that's what Paul is saying. And you're right, Bray. You are absolutely right. First Thessalonians tells us 
reminds us that um, um, Paul felt he, was, he couldn't endure it any longer. But then he says, once I, I found out how you were doing through Timothy, I came alive again. I mean, think of that. He says, I've, I've come alive. Because it is reciprocal. It, it, it develops my faith as much as your faith to be in relationship. That's why we do what we do. That's what church is all about. That's why we have pastors. That's why we have grounded groups and leaders and and we develop others, and we're encouraging people to connect with one another, to be together in prayer, and to study God's Word, to meet together, to sit on a patio, or, or, or gather in somebody's garage, or whatever. That's why we do it, because of what Paul is saying. The success is here in this letter. And what's the goal? What's the objective of all this? Paul wanted these early believers to win at their faith. It's about winning. Paul had a big objective. Don't think that Paul just got together to, to chit-chat. He got together with them because he wanted them to win. See, we all want to win. Everybody wants to win in life. It goes way back in early societies, in all early cultures. The games reminded the Thessalonians that winning was important. Winning is really important to us. Winning a life. But the question is, what, what are you winning at? What's your goal? you got to d- identify your goal. Just, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't do any good just to say, I want to win. you got to know what you're doing, what, what your win is, and then what you're doing about your win. Does that make sense? you got to have something in mind. Otherwise, you're not, what, do you hit, what target are you hitting at, shooting at? Several challenges. Often, when we mess up, we make a bad decision, it defines us, rather than allowing the wind to define us. So we get sidetracked by a defeat, and then we're like wiped out. Another challenge. Sometimes we say, well, winning's not everything. Come on, seriously. Winning is not everything. I'm not a very competitive person, so it's not about winning in life. Well, there must be a typo in the New Testament, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24... Paul says, I run in such a way that you may win. Now, that must be a typo, because Paul must not have really meant that. Paul wanted to win, and he wants us to have the same winning attitude when it comes to our faith. That's why he developed the relationship that Bray's talking about with the Thessalonians, and he wants to see the same thing happen here. We may say, well, if you don't win at life, if you don't have a goal, somebody else will. That's a great challenge. If you don't have a goal for your life, somebody else will. The culture is pressing upon us with an objective that may not be your objective. So you better know what your objective is. The the old phrase, winners never quit, and quitters never win, is really true. They don't quit. Why? Because they have an objective. You know, I googled this idea of winning, and I found an article, and this one article indicated winning is all about leveling up, that there's five levels, and to win is to move up from one level to the next. 
I thought this was really interesting. So there's these five levels. The first level is define food, okay? That's the basic level of human life. Now, we all need to move up from that level, right? Some of us haven't yet, but we're getting there. We're moving up. Like, okay, we got that one covered. And the second level is to know that you're safe, okay? We're moving up. There's the second level. Third level is to find your people. You got to find your people. Why? Because we were made for relationships. Number three, I like this. We're moving. We're continuing to move. Do something important with your life. And then third, create a legacy. Leave a legacy. Do you see that? And here's how you do it. Life throws problems at you and you either find a solution or you get distracted. And if you get distracted and discouraged, you you stay at the same level. You're still at the finding food level. Rather than moving up to building a legacy for your life, unless you figure out how to solve the problem. And when you figure out how to solve the problem, you level up. That's brilliant. It's exactly what Paul's saying. That's what he's saying in three ways. You got to define your win. You got to protect your win. And you got to work your win. That's what Paul's going to tell us in chapter three. I've come to you. I've sent Timothy because I I want you to know that your faith is important. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at all three of these. I want you to define your win. I want you to protect that win and I, I want you to work it. That's how you win at life. So in order to get us into this moment, what I want to do is I want to read 1 Thessalonians 3 from kind of a creative translation. I wrote this. This is my interpretation of chapter 3. This is what I think Paul is saying to us. Paul's going to come through time and he's going to speak this letter directly to us. Just listen, listen. This is the Apostle Paul. I've been at this now many years. My travels have taken me throughout Macedonia and Acacia and Asia. I've been to Jerusalem and back again. I now step forward through time to bring you, the River Church, a message. A message I delivered to the Thessalonians back in AD 49. They were a city folk, much like you. The city was alive with business and commerce. Strategically important to Rome, politically full of culture, alive with Greek and Roman religious rites and practices, along with Jewish synagogues. Families, household servants, apprentices crowded the streets. Every race and every religious practice evident in the city. And like Thessalonica, I know your struggles. You are followers of Christ in the South Bay. Life is good. It's really good. The metropolis you live in breathes life into your soul. It is alive with possibilities, but also distractions. Are you fulfilled? Are you really fulfilled beyond just simply your work or money? Is your faith alive? That's what I really want to know. Your faith. That's what matters. I've heard of your faith, and I've heard it's alive, and that you are, and I'm immensely proud of your faith. I know because my fellow pastors who have been appointed to watch over you have told me of your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope. 
I bring you a message to the South Bay about your faith. I've heard it's strong. A good report has been given, and I am utterly without words of now your influence and your impact you've had throughout your community and beyond. But I want to strengthen you, brothers and sisters, in your faith. Hold on to your faith. This is the most important thing. It's not the only thing, but it's the most important thing. could be said that without faith, you can't even please God. Winning in life is a strong and active faith. Let me rephrase it. Everybody wants to win at life. The win is everything. We have a drive to be successful and urge to press on. To win is the key to life, but what is that win? What's it look like to you? The win is your faith being lived out in the South Bay as followers of Christ. I'll ask again, so what does your win look like? Every Christian must define the win for their own life. It's faith, real faith, active faith, faith that is alive at work as opposed to some imitation faith. You know the difference, right? Many people believe, but few really live. You live on the coast. Surely you enjoy seafood. If I were to tell you that you were, we were having king crab for dinner at our house tonight, along with hard-crusted sourdough bread and a pinot, pinot grigio to accent the meal, and I invited you, you'd, you'd be all over that. But when you arrived, you saw a table set and a plate full of imitation crab, you would be sorely disappointed. A pile of unknown rubbery stuff mixed with mayonnaise as opposed to the real thing. There's a major difference between the real thing and the cheap imitation. Real faith for Christians is like that. It has a different taste, a different texture, a sweetness to it. So what does your faith look like as you describe your win for your life? I've sent Bill and Kathy and Denise and Luke and Amanda and James and Todd as your pastors to encourage you to define the win in your life. Your win is the goal, the course of your life, and that's the course your life will take until the day you arrive in the eternal kingdom. Without these pastors, you'd be on your own. As I've often said, you cannot expect what you cannot inspect. I sent them to care for you, to strengthen you, to encourage you, to discover the win in your life. Don't neglect their work of love in your life. So first of all, I want you to define it for yourself. Write it down. Second, remember, Excuse me one second. Here we go. Second of all, remember that you will need to protect the win. It won't be easy. I was beaten. I've been thrown in jail. I've been run out of town. To focus on your win will take everything you have. The tempter will dissuade you. He will tell you that your win is not that important. Let it go. Live for the moment. Go with the flow of the culture. Don't listen to the noise. That's why I sent these pastors and leaders to guide you. We all get off track. If left to our own devices, 
we will fail. And finally, you have to work your win. You will have to work at it. It will take effort to bring it to completion. But let me tell you, there is no greater satisfaction than reaching the end of your life and knowing that you have completed the task, the goal of your life, the win of your faith. So what I find here is Paul now just writes to us an encouragement that he wants us to win in our faith. Three things. First of all, you've got to define it. Then you've got to protect it and you've got to work it. So defining your faith is really important. Five times in this passage, Paul mentions faith. It's obviously important in verse 2. I, I want to send Timothy to strengthen and encourage you to your, about your faith. In verse 5, I want to find out about your faith. Verse 6, they brought me good news. Timothy brought me good news about your faith. Verse 7, I want you to be comforted and I will be comforted through your faith. And then verse 10, I want to see your faith completed. Faith, 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 faith. He just keeps talking about this idea of faith. Faith is the goal. As one commentator says, it is the most important. It's not the only thing, but it most certainly is the most important thing because without faith, you can't please God. We come to Christ through faith. We live by faith. Faith is the Christian life. So what is it? Faith is both a noun and a verb. Pistos means to believe. Pistuo means I'm believing. I'm living as though I believe. They're tied. You need both the noun and the verb. You can't just have one without the other. You can't just have a noun faith in your life. You need a verb faith as well. It means to actively believe in what you have confidence in. Hebrews 11.1. 1. It's... it's it's the, uh, it's the assurance of the things you haven't seen. You're assured of something you haven't seen. How? You have confidence. Where's that confidence come from? 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You have no faith. Your faith is worthless. You may say you have faith, but it's worthless if you don't anchor it on the resurrection of Christ. So it's an active faith that I now live out. It's a noun and it's a verb. Let me give you an illustration. Marriage. Marriage is both a noun and a verb. Do you know that? I'm married. But here it is as a verb. How? To be a husband, to be a wife, is to understand marriage from the standpoint of a verb rather than a noun. It's something you do. It's something... You, you, you experience, not something you just claim. Does that make sense? So this is really kind of weird, but I actually took the word husband and wife and made them a verb in the following statements. Now, many of you are going to walk away going, that was the oddest thing I've ever heard of. But you won't forget the point. Marriage is a verb. So if I were to use wife as a verb, Here's how I would use it. I am wifing the dishes into the dishwasher. Why? Because I care. 
because I'm living as a good husband. And that's why I wife them into the dishwasher. Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> well, here's one. Will you husband the groceries into the pantry? Just husband them in there. Here's another one. I am wifing the kids to school this morning after I wife their lunches. You, you, you're getting the idea, right? It's what you do. Here's one. I husband myself into the car so we're not late for church. Right? It's honoring the other person. It becomes a verb. You, at some point, you start living it like it's really important to you. That's what Paul is saying about faith. James says it too, James chapter 2. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Faith without works is dead. If you just have faith and it doesn't become active, live faith, it's worthless, futile. You got to have a plan. You got to define that plan. And so in a minute, I'm going to encourage you, pull out your phones. I mean, literally, or something. Go to this note app. There's a note app. And write my goal, my win. Here's my win. This is what my win looks like. This is active faith being lived out in my life. You got to write it. It's your life. It's faith in Christ being lived out in a certain way through your life. And then write one for your marriage and write one for your kids. I did it. It's here in my journal. I wrote it out. And the way I wrote it is my win for my life is to pursue X in order to accomplish Z. So I'm pursuing something to accomplish something. That's what I, that's, that was my goal. I went for my marriage, my kids, or maybe your friends, or maybe you were in a, a boyfriend, girlfriend, relation, dating relationship. What are you pursuing to accomplish something? Because that will set the course of your life. That's the win in your life. Paul, Paul talks all over the New Testament about it. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is for Christ and die is to gain. To live on is much more important, so that's what I do. Is I going to carry on for your sake? I mean, Paul identifies it in 1 Corinthians 9. He says in verse 19, I'm free, but I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win all the more. Paul had other people in mind in his win. In the very end of Paul's ministry, in Acts chapter 20, Paul's about ready to get on a ship, go to Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested and taken to Rome and thrown in prison. And these are the words he said. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim, that is my win, is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying the good news of God's grace. And so I did it. I, I want to encourage you to do that. And maybe you just rise, begin with a rough draft. And, and just what are the first thoughts that come to mind? Maybe it's one of those scriptures. Maybe it's a, an important verse that God is just like impressed. John chapter 15 is a very, very important section of scripture. James, you actually predicted that would happen. So in John 15, this whole idea of abiding has become really important to me. And 
And in Isaiah, Isaiah has just been very, very powerful in my life. In Isaiah chapter 40, God says, Oh, comfort, oh, comfort thy people, the Messiah. He's coming. And it says when he comes, the highways, there will be a highway through the desert. The valleys will be laid, the mountains will be laid low, and it'll just be this highway. And the Lord comes with his reward. And guess what his reward is? Us. God, the Messiah, is coming with his reward, which is you and I. I hold on to that. God considers me his reward. And then in Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 10, verse 4, it says, God says, I love you. I, I read that over and over. God says, I love you. And because of this idea that God is so committed to me, I want to pursue his presence. And so this is what I wrote. I want a steady, consistent pursuit of God's presence in my life so that I could be, here's the accomplishment, an unstoppable force for spiritual motivation and direction for others. That's what I, that's the end of my life. I want to look back and say that I pursued God and that I was this unstoppable force for others. That's what I want. Marriage, support and nurture Denise so that we live as unified one for love, companionship, and strength for our kids and guide for others. That's, that's my goal. Our kids, in this season of our life, when they were younger, I had three thoughts for them. You are loved unconditionally. You are the best you can be right now. And you need to learn to stand alone. Because life is hard. You gotta stand alone. Now, it's a gentle presence that undergirds their faith and development and God's plan for their lives by being available, focused, and consistent help in time of trouble. That's what I want for my kids. That's my goal for my children. And now with our grandchildren. So what's that plan for you? If you don't have a plan, you're like Ephesians 4. It says we are to grow up into the mature person. Otherwise, we become like children tossed and driven by the wind. Scott McKnight has a comment about that in one of his books. This culture that is so focused on pleasure that it's literally become, it's the juvenile, juvenilization of culture. He uses the word juvenilization. People that aren't growing up. And that's exactly what Paul's saying in Ephesians, that if we don't move on in our faith, we become like children tossed and driven, and you'll be tossed and driven by the wind and the waves. There's this juvenilization in culture because we want to be relevant and dressed to the fads and, and, and be a member of this culture and fit in and all the other stuff. But faith and action is going to put us on a different course. So what's the course of your life? You've got to define that. And then second of all, you've got to protect it. Paul says, I've come to you because I know that you, otherwise you'll be disturbed by the tempter. There's two things here. To be disturbed, literally the word means to look over there and see a dog wagging its tail. And the wagging of the tail will disturb you from what you're focusing on. And you're so distracted by this pointless thing that you've gotten off course. It's the, it's the wagging of a tail 
that, that draws us aside from our objective. And then he says, be careful because the tempter. He uses the word tempter in this verse. Do you see that? It's the tempter. That's the same verse, the same language that's used in Matthew when it says that Jesus went into the desert and the tempter came to him. How did the tempter tempt Jesus? He tempted him by words, by speaking lies. And if he had followed those, if he had listened to the tempter, he would have been off course in his life and his ministry. Distraction is devastating to your win. That's why you have to put steel in your win or he will steal your win. S-T-E-E-L. You've got to have something strong, something that holds you strong. I'm working out with this guy. And he's got me on a balance ball. And it's a half ball. And it, and it, it sits on the ground and you've got to step up on it. You've got to stand on it. You've got to lift weights on it. You've got to do... D, and he throws things at me and I have to keep my balance. Why? What's he doing? He is working a part of me that isn't strong. It's my core. He's working on the internal core of my life, of my body. Just as Paul is saying, if you don't have a strong steel foundation, then what's going to happen? You're, the first thing that happens in your life, you're out. People hit against the wall, something happens in their life, and they're done. I'm out of here. I'm out. Temper's saying, you shouldn't stay in this. This is not worth it. You've just been hurt. You, you've been maligned. No one deserves to go through this. That is not God speaking to you. That's the tempter. And if you don't have steel in your win, then he's going to steal your win. Third thing is you got to work it. You got to work it. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 8, stand firm, stand fast. It's both feet hanging in there. 1 Thessalonians 3.10, he uses the word to complete. What is lacking? See, complete what is lacking in your faith. In other words, your faith needs to be equipped. You have faith. You believe in Christ. Now grow that faith. It's, the word is the same word that's used if you have a fishing net and it has a hole in it. You're not going to catch very many fish with a hole in it. So you've got to repair the net before you're going to get any fish. Or it's a broken bone. If you have a broken bone, your body is not going to work very well. You've got to address the broken bone before the body functions again. That's the word that Paul uses. So what area of your life has a hole in it or is broken or that needs equipped, needs to be strengthened? You got to work at it. Paul says you got to, in order to be complete until the day of Christ. See, that's working your win. You're working it. You're working it day after day. You're doing things you didn't think you could do. My little grandson, our grandson, August, is uh, almost three. In, in, in uh, August, he'll be three. And he's in swimming lessons with Miss Lori. So day one was a disaster. I mean, I heard shrieks come out of this kid's mouth that I have never heard before. I didn't know a child 
could make these noises. Miss Lori said, stop, August, it's hurting my ears. And he stopped, and then he started again. And it was, it was really hard to watch. And then the week went on, and I heard it got better, and then I showed up Friday for Fun Friday, which is the graduation day, right? So the week comes to a close. And Miss Lori has these little kids do something that's so interesting. She has them jump into the pool with all their clothes on. You're thinking, well, that's odd. Why does she do that? So that they know that they can do it if they ever fall into the pool with their clothes on. They've never done it before. They don't think it's possible until they actually try it and discover, hey, I can do this. I can swim with my clothes on. Not as well as I can with my shoes off and just my bathing suit, but, but I can do it. I can survive. I can get myself to the side. And that is working faith. There's an area of your life you don't think you can do. No way. There's no way I can do this. But you begin to work it. And you jump in with your clothes on, and guess what? God gives you more strength. He gives you more faith. And you just keep going. And it builds, and you get stronger and stronger and stronger. But you got to jump in. You got to jump in. That's the win in your life. Do you want to win? Define it, protect it, and work it. So, Father, we thank you that Paul. showed us what devotion really looks like. And I pray that, first of all, we would be devoted to one another in love, brotherly kindness. And that we, as Bray so beautifully shared from her own life, the value and importance of being connected with one another, what that does for us as well as them, anyone else. But also thank you that you have given us a greater understanding now of what the win is. And right now, Holy Spirit, I pray you just be pouring out right now. The Holy Spirit would just be pouring out thoughts and ideas onto our minds. Speak to us, Holy Spirit, we pray. That you would help us identify our personal wins of faith. Faith lived out in my life looks like this. I pursue this, accomplishing that. Father, give that to me, I pray in Jesus' name. Give each of us a win that is personal and powerful that we might strive for in this life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
reminded of yesterday. I had time with the Lord and asked him, God, what am I afraid of? And in my own journey, the Lord has really shown me those things. And I asked God, you know, what's the opposite of fear? And I looked up the, the dictionary version of it and it said confidence. And I've never seen that as a reminder of what would be opposite of fear. And I challenged myself to see where I put my confidence in. And I've realized that I don't always put it in who God is to us and his love for us. And so as we finish this song and move into the next one, I just challenge us all to take stock of where our confidence is, where we're putting our trust, where we're putting our courage to believe. And as we hear the message that Todd's given us of having faith that we can put our confidence in a good God that's with us. So let's sing this melody together as we believe that for each and every one of us this morning.
nothing that could separate your love for us. Let that be our confidence this morning. That behind it all is this beautiful, loving Father. Beautiful, loving God for us. Let that really soak into our hearts this morning. We lay down every fear, every hindrance of love before you this morning. We ask that you would replace it with your love, with your assurance, and your promise, God.